You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommy Well Missing Podcast. This is Osma Joffrey. This is Ava Hassan. And as I, you can imagine, well, first of all, I just woke up from a nap, so I'm a little bit tired and a little bit rough, but Osma was determined to make this happen. And we're actually sitting next to each other. Yay! And if you notice the background, no, we're not trying to kidnap anybody and have like a thing, like a curtain. You know those curtains on the back when you see That's those kidna- nice. kidnap Nobody videos? Nobody does that with houndstooth. That's true. Okay. You kidnap with like burlap, I think. That's right. Okay. We're, it's like the burlap and nobody is, <laughs> our face isn't covered. So we are, nobody's being kidnapped, but we're we safe. are in a foreign country. We've been taken. We together. have been taken together <laughs> on our own. So that is what we're doing. So you want to tell everybody, Osman, what we have been up to while I pull up the notes? <laughs> That she's looking at right now. Exactly, which drives Uzma crazy. <laughs> it doesn't. I've accepted it, and I'm totally fine with it. This is how we roll, and it works. Alhamdulillah. So as you know, on our stories and on our, I think on our post too, yeah, we're posting reels about a Morocco trip. So, so far, we've put up three days. I think this is actually our fifth day, so we're behind posting because internet it's not it's working kind today. Of the pits. No, it really hasn't been working. Not at all. Yeah, I think we had one good day. Yeah, which is okay. <laughs> That's fine. Alhamdulillah. The whole point was to disconnect. Yes, yeah. literally disconnect. And I have to say, I've embraced it and I've really appreciated it. Um, and Uzma has had to learn to go with the flow and really disconnect. I didn't recognize, you know, when you meet know somebody, you've known them for years and you see that, <laughs> but when you're on a girl's trip together, you recognize, okay, she probably thinks I'm a lot more prickly than I normally am, which is true, I am. And then I realized she's a, a lot more having to be connected than I am. So it's really nice to be one in a group of women where I've had to be less prickly, op- more open and receptive, and Uzma has had to disconnect. Yes. I've had to learn to, but I've not really been disconnected. No. No, because, I mean, we still work. There's still the podcast to get ready for, so we're still doing that. We're doing the work, ladies We're doing the work, absolutely. So what are your thoughts on Morocco so far? So I do have to say, you know, how we've done it, we're actually here with an organization called Sisters Getaway. I've been on um, a retreat with them in the past. I went to Spain with them. And I really like how they function, right? So you you come in, you're in more of a remote um, indigenous part of the country where there really isn't any Wi-Fi, air conditioning for us Americans coming in. Um, and it kind of puts you in a situation where you really have to connect with the people that you're in. And you have people like us that are married with kids all the way down to young um, ladies just kind of trying to explore. So it's been an amazing um, blessing to be able to do that. And obviously look at yourself a little bit and be like, okay, what is it about me when I meet different people that I react or respond in a different way? So I'm really using it as a teaching tool for myself. But the country of Morocco, I have definitely fallen in love with it, even though my hair is a hot mess. It's hot, it's humid, it's sticky, but... The history 
is really fascinating. Mm-hmm. So what what has it been like for you? Well, I've appreciated that despite the stickiness, your blowout was only $6. My blowout was $6. $6 or seven, right? $6. Um, and I needed it because literally I would walk into a room and my hair would be bigger and bigger and bigger by the day. She looked like Bozo. And she was, li- yeah, she was like, oh my God, what has happened to your hair? Um, with the benefit of a hijab, right? Like she didn't have to worry about that yeah, as much. I also look like Bozo, but like a different color version. It's just funny. So, but alhamdulillah, Morocco, this is my second visit and I still, I came here with family the first time and I feel like I'm with family here Yay! again. And alhamdulillah, now she's being more and more convinced to retire here. So yeah. I'll have a home here, right? I 100% believe that. I like in the wintertime, I was like, okay, it's really, it's 118 plus whatever. So I don't know if I can quite do that in the summertime, <laughs> but I do think I can come here in the winter and, and love it and um, be embraced. Speaking of retirement, you know, we are kicking off this month um, with our death and dying. We're continuing our death and dying series. And um, it sounds very, you know, depressing and sad, but really death is a part of life. It's part of that cycle, right? So um, it is a necessary topic for Muslim moms like us who Mm -hmm. are the sandwich generation dealing with older adults in our lives that are um, dealing with these type of um, aging issues. Um, And unfortunately, some of us have had to bury children or spouses, but we also are dealing and facing the, the real um, what is it? The real possibility of potentially burying our parents, right? So we're going to be um, talking a little bit about the whole unfortunate, the whole gamut of um, death and dying, and how Muslims, how we actually respond to that. Um, but you know, our guest today which I'm excited about, is actually our amazing and beautiful co-host. She is an MD, CMD, who's been a solo um, doctora, Dr. Ra, everybody, for her practices (laughs) in geriatrics for over a decade. And she just launched her telehealth family practice earlier this year. So, And I love that. I'm trying to get her licensed in Virginia. (laughs) She has also been a hospice medical director for almost a decade. So she's got a lot of experience in the actual field that we're talking about. And she's here to tell us what role, if any, hospice and palliative care has in our Muslim American experience of death and dying. And so we're going to welcome us here today. Assalamu alaikum. Waalaikumsalam. It's so good to be on the podcast. I know. That I've never been on before. Exactly. No, but you know, obviously, you know how it is. We mm-hmm. talk, um, we first ask our um, guests, like, what is their momming story and philosophy? And maybe a lot of people, let's do a quick reintroduction for people that don't know what that is. What is your momming story? And tell us a little bit about your momming philosophy. My momming story is that I didn't start momming until late in the game, unlike you. So I, unlike most of my friends actually, so I was one of the latest to have children and then just had to like wham bam them out, mostly by accident. So the first one and my last one were intentional and the one, two in between, um, it, they were just kind of happened. blessing. Huge blessings, as my boss called them, happy accidents. Happy accidents. Um, it, just happy blessings, you know, basically. And there was no plan. We are seat of our pants parents. And, and apparently co- um, podcast host, too, because yeah. we're literally in the seat of our pants right now. <laughs> 
Um, well, I was talking about my husband and me. We just kind of winged it. And we we're like, okay, let's see. My momming philosophy has changed, of course, because as I learn, I feel like I evolve as a mother. And so initially it was like, I am going to, you know, do all the right things and read all the right books and like follow all the experts and the you right know, things, the, right. the right things <laughs> and do what like all the, in my mind, what the models, the models of mothering that I encountered we're doing if I do it just like them then my kids will be okay and it turns out and we'll be posting a reel about this shortly mm-hmm. that what you do is exactly the right thing to do short of abuse of course but you know at one point I was I think abusing my kids and so when I learned better I did better and alhamdulillah I'm a completely different mom and now it's more about validating and affirming my kids because in that I find validation and affirmation of myself I absolutely love that. And we've had a couple of really um, in-depth conversations about that. And we are experienced moms. We own it. We embrace it. But we're experienced moms because we've had to learn um, the hard way along the way. And with every child, we've learned and grown. And we and grown, and we really feel that way now. So, you know, we've made mistakes, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and we admit it. And we try to do better. So I feel like I appreciate that you are... Um, uh, open and receptive to talking to people about that because we don't we always want to paint this perfect picture like I'm an amazing mom and I'm an amazing this and I'm amazing that but the reality is you're only as good as the information that you know for that time mm-hmm. and then you have to be open and receptive to learning and growing yeah. so I love that for and you. with each individual child because yes. each of them is a completely different person and experience you know and just approaching them as that like what are you going to be like in the future? What are you like now, most importantly? But like trying to figure out what you're growing into or who you're growing into and nurturing that, directing it in a positive way is a huge responsibility. Yeah. And trying to tap into that with, like you said, the information given at the time, what I know from it. And that information can come from moms that are most, more experienced. Yeah. I lean on you a lot. Yeah. And, and I've learned and grown from her as well as, there, as she's learning new information. So that's the beauty of our... Um, community mm-hmm. in our village is that we should learn one another but you know and part of what I want to know and I do go to Uzma a lot for this is because we are in that sandwich generation and we are starting to face some real life issues where we're still taking care of super young children but now our ch- our parents are aging they're not necessarily making the best health decisions for themselves we've kind of had to step in for some of that and you know I go to Uzma a lot for that because that is definitely her expertise and the first question that I always have is like what is okay can you explain what hospice is and what's palliative care and why is it that we need to know the difference between the two um i think it's important that's a great question because like you always say name Mm -hmm. entertainment yes so i would say that palliative care is sometimes several steps before sometimes the step before hospice care so we'll define that first in palliative care is um any interventions to provide comfort and accommodation for chronic diseases. And you know, the big chronic disease that we know that kills Americans is heart disease, right? And that can be, that is the number one killer of Americans. So we wanna make sure that we understand the types of heart diseases there are, and there's just typically, you have blood vessels, coronary atherosclerosis, which means your heart vessels are like clogged. It's eventually going to lead to heart attacks. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They basically turn into like solid pipes and solid pipes don't flow blood and that causes problems. So as more and more of those get blocked, you will see people get more sick. You'll have congestive heart failure is one of those things. Kidney disease. So we have, because of diabetes, we have so many people now who are diabetic. By 2030, it's projected that the majority of the world will be obese and diabetes is directly related to that. Um, And then directly related to diabetes is 
chronic kidney disease, which eventually leads to dialysis. So those people who don't want to do or on that path that are on dialysis, there are things that are going to happen to them, including heart attacks and strokes and stuff like that because of their kidney disease. They're maybe going to have a lot of problems and symptoms associated with those problems that every time they have an exacerbation, those symptoms need to be controlled and can be medically managed. Um, and that doesn't mean just with medication, there's therapies that are available to people. Okay. And so you're using all of those things to provide comfort and you can be going in and out of the hospital, but the goal of palliative care is to keep you comfortable at home as much as possible and then guide you through those hospitalizations. What can we do better to control your symptoms to prevent the next hospitalization? But typically what this involves is a palliative care specialist, which will be a physician. We're seeing now nurse practitioners who are specializing in it. Um, and it's a lot of symptom control for your chronic disease, whether it's heart disease, whether it's kidney disease. I'm trying to think of some others. There's a lot of neurologic diseases. So we're seeing a lot more Alzheimer's as our baby boomers have all aged in. They're all 65 plus now. Um, we're seeing, we're gonna see a lot more Alzheimer's just because there's more bodies that can have it, more brains that can have it. Um, so what symptoms do we need to control? What is manifesting for these people? And then, you know, Parkinson's disease, any other uh, neuromuscular disorders that are coming up. Now, when it gets to a really terminal state where it's like further hospitalization mm -hmm. is probably going to be more of a harm to this person than... Um, because the end is kind of inevitable at this point, imminent. right? Yeah. yeah, okay. And the question, what I tell patients and families is, you know, hospice, the hospice benefit is a Medicare A benefit. Medicare A, there's different types of Medicare. Medicare A is our hospital insurance once we're 65 and older, and then you also qualify for that if you have certain medical diagnoses and are younger than 65. Okay. But um, Medicare A is, your, a is your hospital insurance, and at some point if you decide, okay, I'm done going to the hospital, I am not going to go to the hospital because it's not controlling my symptoms anymore, they're actually getting worse. I want to cash in on my hospice benefit because if you look at your paychecks, you have a Medicare tax and a Social Security tax that's taken out. You are paying into this Medicare A system. And then um, <coughs> after you're 65, you get like Medicare insurance that you can use for hospital or for hospice. You've technically already paid for hospice. So that's what a lot of people are like, who's paying for that? They're thinking about it, but what the doctor has to answer to Medicare, would you be surprised if this person died in six months? And if the answer is no, then that person is probably hospice appropriate. Okay. So we'll get into more of, well, how do you know that and everything, because that's what families will typically ask. But that those are the basic definitions. Palliative care, symptom management of chronic progressive disease, where we know it's not going to get better. It only gets worse. And hospice is when we know this person is terminal, which means they'll pro we expect them to pass in six months or less. Guidance Residential has partnered with Freddie Mac to promote home ownership by offering up to $1,500 for eligible customers towards the purchase of their new home. You can apply for a credit towards your down payment or for your closing cost. And if you're a real estate agent, you can share this great promotion with your buyer and have them save up to $1,500. Go to guidanceresidential.com for more information or take a look at our socials. So why did you go into something like geriatric care when people are more towards the end of their life versus like pediatricians or pediatrics, which is more towards the beginning or, you know, something like that? Why pick this particular genre? Because you are seeing people at their more advanced stages, which comes with a whole plethora of issues. Why did you choose that? Um, I'm going to go back to my college days because... 
you know, back then to go to medical school, you had to have like volunteer experiences. Everybody wants to go to the pediatric hospital, yeah. be a candy striper. The kids are so cute. I don't think sick kids are cute. I found mm. out that they scared the heck out of me. And the pediatric hospital had like a really long wait list for volunteers. So didn't go there. Um, I didn't want to volunteer at like a therapist's office, like physical therapy, occupational therapy, labs were nearby. Um, there really just weren't any convenient opportunities and something new that I had heard of, which was being developed in the Texas Medical Center at the time, was growing um, and was pretty new in its infancy, was hospice. And they were, would take a volunteer like me who was 20 and had 19, 20, had zero experience in anything. They spent, I think, something like 60 hours training me on how to sit with dying patients and why this was important. I remember fighting with my dad about it. And I was like, I have to go because if I can't see someone die, how can I be a physician? Mm, that's very true. Right? Like, that's a good point. Yeah. Like, let me save myself a lot of time and energy by going to the opposite end and seeing the hard parts. And it turned out it was one of the most beautiful things I'd ever seen. And that was kind of the beginning of my, like, that's when I dipped my toes into medical care. I would say, okay, maybe host on high school. But this is officially when I saw, like, medical diseases, really bad and <laughs> tough situations. And it didn't turn me, it made me even more passionate. So then I get in and I'm like, I'm going to be an OB forever. I realized as a medical student that was not the life I wanted to live because I, it was really important to me to be a mom too. Yeah. And I wanted to be able to, not that it can't be done. Many women do it. I just didn't want to do that for me. It was not right for me. Um, and then uh, I ended up loving everything. So I did family medicine. And what I saw consistently throughout my career starting in medical school was <laughs> old people languishing in the hospital, languishing in ICUs, no visitors. Like, no home-cooked food, no family sitting there and reciting Surah Yasin, Surah al like we have in our families. And then a waiting room full of, like, masjid family members and community members, like, also praying for you and making dua. And the old people, like, maybe there would be a kid calling, but usually we were calling the family and giving them updates. Like, people didn't want to know. Yeah. And it was, it, would, it blew my mind because that was not the way we were raised. We were raised to never leave our elders in the hospital alone. Some of them had, not my grandfather, but my other, my two grandmothers had language issues. They weren't fluent in English. So family always had to be there, always had to advocate for them. We brought home cooked food because it's healthier, it's not. Mm -hmm. Skim off the fat from the top and like give it to them to make them stronger and healthier. Um, so it was a very different experience I didn't understand. I was like, okay, it doesn't matter if old people are Muslim or not. They will always bless you and pray for you. And if the, those prayers and blessings reached Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala on my behalf, then I would take it. I want to take care of older people because I knew that this baby boomer generation was going to age in, and that's my parents. Yeah. So if I didn't know how to take care of them in their darkest hours, um, then I didn't. I certainly didn't want my colleagues doing it because when you go to medical school, you realize how many weirdos are actually going to become doctors. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I got to protect my parents, and I got to protect all these other older people because nobody else was interested. Everybody wanted to specialize and like you know, really glamorous types of specialties, you know, quote unquote. And I was doing something less glamorous, but I thought really important and to serve this big population of older adults that was coming in. And as it turned out, you know, when you take care of older people, hospice is a very big part of that because as it, they, they all die. I remember when the first time they one do, of my we patients, all do die. We all die. Allah promises yes. that. So I remember crying with my when my first patient passed of heart disease actually came home just so upset and miserable because I was in the hospital when it happened with him. And my husband was like, what did you think was going to happen in geriatrics? I was like, I thought it was going to make them live forever. Yeah, 
doesn't work that way. And it doesn't, because Allah says, you're going to meet me, dum-dum. Yeah. So I was like, okay. And then, you know, my husband talked me down. And eventually, um, I got trained a lot by hospice. That was a big part of our curriculum. We had to learn how to actually treat patients who are dying, who Mm -hmm. are terminal. Um, And so if you think about it, it was like a full circle moment for me when I entered hospice work and finally got my medical directorship in hospice because that's how I started my career. Oh, and, and, and as a you, volunteer, as a volunteer, she started as a volunteer and has, and has evolved into this. And it seems like a very heartwarming counterintuitively to what people would say, mm-hmm. um, experience for you in helping elder care. So, you know, obviously you, you don't just deal with Muslim people no. clearly, mm-hmm. obviously you, you see all of them, but what, if any like trends or observations have you, pers- anecdotal, clearly, have you made um, for like Muslim American patient trends, like whether it's dealing with the families or seeing the elderly patients um, with regards to like hospice or palliative care? So there's certainly some trends that we notice in uh, hospice care. There's not a lot of data on what religions people have in America and you know sign up for hospice care. But what we do know and we do see is that there's certain communities that do not, they don't either understand hospice care or they're not um, accepting the hospice frame of reference. Like okay. they don't understand exactly what hospice is. I would say across the board, most people think hospice is euthanizing. And euthanizing means oh. physician-assisted suicide which is absolutely not hospice. Okay? okay, That's like a completely different thing. And the states where I have ever lived, it's completely illegal. Yes. So I think it was Dr. Kabukian. Kabukian. Yeah, who was the first one who generated that controversy back when we were young. And people still think that, oh, Dr. Kabukian. And they hear hospice and they hear giving up. They hear killing my loved one, um, killing me sl- slowly and softly, right? Um, the trends we see, the certain communities that do not accept it or do not understand it, or I even think won't understand it. Okay. Like they're unteachable about it. Okay. Um, the Latin American community. Okay. Very staunchly religious community usually. Mm-hmm. Um, because life is very important as we understand in the Catholic community. Muslims, again, life is very important. Um, they have, like their Jewish counterparts, the if you save one life, it's as if you saved all of humanity. If you take one life, it's as if you destroyed all of humanity. However, Jewish people don't seem to have that big a deal. They don't have to have trouble understanding hospice, but their Muslim cousins do. Um, and then uh, maybe there's certain like micro ethnicities that also don't understand it. I would say um, the indigenous Native American population also. There's like certain things that we can and can't do, can and cannot say in front of them. Uh, there's actually very poor data on Muslims in particular. There's We have end of life data from like other Muslim countries, like Kingdom of Saudi Arabia has a lot. And I think research going on, but I think we need to do a better job of collecting data here in the United States. Sadly, um, I can count on one hand how many Muslim families have signed up for hospice under my care. Um, And so my team will usually lean on me to ask, like, how do we do this? Or I'll have to tell them, hey, this is how you're going to do this. And this is the, you know, mortuary you're going to contact because this needs to be done immediately within 24 hours of death and stuff. But we can get into more of that later. But I would say those are the primary trends that I note that Muslim families um, historically in my 10 plus years of doing this, very slow to sign on, absolutely will reject it. And their loved one usually ends up dying in the hospital. Okay. So... What steps should we, as Muslims, 
for our faith, obviously you're not going to talk on the faith-based stuff, but like what you see, like facing a terminal diagnosis, you hear it, you're like, okay, this is this is inevitable, like you said, which is where you go to hospice versus palliative care to kind of keep the patient comfortable. What steps should we as Muslims um, do or take um, to help our loved one through that process? So first of all, I would say at some point, especially if your parents are open to it, go to the doctor's appointments with them so you can understand at what stage their disease process is because our parents are notorious for telling us that, oh, everything was fine at the doctor and you learned the exact opposite when it's usually too late. So, and I know everybody's busy. Everybody has a life. Like, you know, like Zeba said, we're sandwich Jenners. Yeah. So we have kids and their sports schedules and our Quran schedules to run after our work schedules. But we have a duty to our parents and we need to follow up and find out what's going on. And if we're not getting good answers to get them to sign uh, a HIPAA waiver, the Healthcare Information Portability and Accountability Act, to say that their doctor can talk to us directly and give us information. This may be hard with some personalities of parents, depending on what your relationship with is with your parents and what your parents are like. However, I think it's really critical so that you can also from the doctor get a little email like this is the progress note, this is what we discussed. And if there's something you don't understand, then you don't need to necessarily talk to your parent. You can just call the doctor's office and say, can you explain this to me? The likelihood of the doctor calling you back is pretty low because yeah. they don't get paid for phone calls. So I don't know about you, but I don't like working for free. <laughs> so um, that's why I think going to the appointment and, you know, especially if there's memory issues or cognitive issues that you're noting in your loved one, you want to make sure you're going because especially especially if there's like a catastrophic diagnosis that they're about to face. You know, when we get bad news, once there's like a full stop and then all the information is circling around your head and they can be an in information overwhelm, so they're not going to hear a lot of it. So I think it's really important to go with. And regardless of the stage of the disease they're in, if it's going to be a chronic progressive disease, you can automatically get the palliative care team on. Yes. And usually you touch base once a month, the nurse is calling and saying, what's going on? What are the medications? What are the symptoms? What can we do better? And that's important because that can make that progression slow down. And that's what you want because you're trying to buy time. Um, when you get to the point when there's hospice, remember that hospice is not a place that we go in America. That's more of a European model of hospice care and all those love stories where the girl yeah. falls in love with the dying guy and, you know, she helps euthanize him or the girl's dying and they go to like this beautiful cottage and that's the hospice facility. We don't have that here. Hospice meets you wherever you are. So if you live in a nursing home, they're coming there. If you live in a private home, they're coming there. You live in a trailer park, they're coming there. You live behind a dumpster, they're coming there. But they also have a team of social works, chaplains, um, and the chaplains are non-denominational, just so you know. A lot of Muslims refuse chaplaincy because they think they're trying to convert me at the end of life and I want to die with la ilaha illallah. There's no God but on my lips. Chaplains are just there to provide whatever spiritual support you want and to contact your imam and tell them like, hey, this is what's going on to help with the mortuary situation and your final arrangements and stuff. So that's why the chaplains are there, just to provide support with whatever religious um, resources you have already have in your family. You have the nurse coming twice a week. You have home health aides coming twice a week if you want help with your showers, if you need help with your showers and personal care. They only come twice a week. This is not... Um, Caregiving, okay, caregiving is completely separate and is out of pocket because America will not pay, Medicare will not pay for your <laughs> assistance at home to go to the bathroom or to go take a shower. That is, you have to pay for that. Hospice, Medicare will do it through hospice twice a week. Um, and some hospices will say every day, but it depends state to state. 
Um, and then you have a doctor overseeing all of the care. Some of those doctors will come to the house, but usually we're overseeing the care and every single week we have to report to Medicare whether this person is appropriate or not. And we have to say that they qualify for hospice. They're at this stage of the disease now where we would not be surprised if they died in six months. Okay. And how do you know? We don't have a crystal ball, but we do know how these chronic diseases go and which organ system is li most likely to fail next based on symptomatology. So um, I have a lot of imams and stuff, and I've had imams be like, well, Allah knows best, and Allah knows when people die, and you are not Allah. And I say something different, but no kidding, dude. Um, we, we know that we're not Allah. What we know is that there's nothing else medically that we can do now yeah. to make this person better. It is inevitable that they're going to have an infection. It is inevitable that they're going to have pneumonia. It is inevitable that they're going to have bed sores that will not be curable anymore. And they're going to die. So do we want them to die miserable or do we want them to die comfortable? The one good thing about Medicare is that for hospice patients, they will provide all the equipment you need to be kept comfortable, all the equipment you need to be safe. And then that medical oversight by the medical director is really, really important because they're looking at exactly what medications you need to take. Sometimes morphine and Ativan are involved in what Muslims, a lot of Muslims are afraid to use them because they think one dose of morphine will kill you. Okay. Or they think morphine is only used when you're dying. Okay. Morphine can actually be used when you're still on palliative care for symptom control because it's very good for shortness of breath. It's very good for the anxiety and that feeling of air hunger that you get. Like when you're having an asthma attack, for those of you who've had an asthma attack and you understand, that's like a chronic thing for some of these dying patients. So how do we control it? We give them a touch of morphine, give them a touch of Ativan to control the symptoms and let them breathe. We also do that once they're on hospice. Um, so that's what all of this entails. Um, do the research, find out what hospice agencies, you know, kind of align with what your goals are for end of life. Like I want to make sure that when my loved one dies, the mortuary is not going to show up and pick up their body immediately. I want to spend some time with my family member at home. I want to give time for people who are out of town coming and paying their last respects to the body. Or I want to prepare the body at home. You can do that as well. Um, and all of these things can be accommodated for. I would tell you very confidently, like if anybody says no to you, um, you know, you're welcome to message me and ask. Because I literally, like my brain explodes when people tell me no, I don't understand. There's always a way um, to do things the way your loved one wants. But it's very hard for people to reconcile like, you know, uh, a terminal disease and dying, which is very odd to be as Muslims. So one of my final pieces of advice would be to talk to your trusted imams and figure out like, you know, what are the Islamic rulings? We do have it in our show notes, the links um, on art things like artificial feedings, mm -hmm. IV antibiotics, IV hydration, and all coming from the Akeem Institute. So I think it's really important. We still have a dearth of resources on death and dying for Muslim Americans that is understandable and is um, not either or. So I, I think we can do better work by talking to each other and asking questions and talking to our moms and getting comfortable like, hey, if this happened to my dad, then how would I approach this from an Islamic perspective? Because I completely understand people are afraid of hospice because they're like, well, I don't want to do anything against Islam, which is why I'm choosing to do everything until the doctors tell me there's nothing else to do. But what ends up happening is for medically fragile patients, they're going to end up dying in the hospital. I forgot to mention that one of the reasons why I also went into hospice was all three of my grandparents in the United States died under, I mean, two of them died on hospice, but they all died in facilities like hospitals when the one thing they said was, we want to die at home. And literally watching one grandparent d drown in their own fluids, um, that for me was like, 
you know, I was asked like, oh, if you had a horse, would you shoot it? When I asked for comfort care for her, I was like, yeah, I'd shoot the horse 10 times. I know this like, you know, mm -hmm. hurts your animal sensitivities. I love horses too. But yes, I would shoot it 10 times because it's a horse, but my loved one is my loved one. And I don't think that, you know, while pain erases our sins, suffering does not. And when we, as people who are able to help the loved one who is no longer able to control their environment and their situation and their symptoms, it's our job to prevent the suffering and to alleviate the suffering. That is a rahmah, that is a mercy. And if we're not merciful to these people, what's going to happen in our situation? Who's going to be merciful to us? I'm not worried about my children. I'm worried about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So I think it is a religious duty upon me to make it easy for people to go meet him because Again, he tells us this life is temporary. So everybody who's like holding on to the loved one, just think about it. Get ready for it. We're doing it out of selfish reasons. So coach yourself and be like, nobody belongs to me. Not my children, not my parents, not my spouse, nothing in this world. I'm going to end up with nothing in six feet. And so is my loved one. And how can we make this transition as easy as possible? So. 100%. And then in the meantime, if you're looking for that support, like Osma said, it's going to be in our show notes. Um, and don't be afraid to go to the, the chaplains that are there. Don't be afraid to like reach out to the Yakin Institute and a lot of institutes that if you want to know some more specific um, rulings and um, rules about Islamic um, palliative and his, um, hospice care. But in the meantime, like Osma offered herself and her services. So if you need any um, answers or just need somebody to talk to feel free to dm us and we'll make sure we get um we'll get back to you one of us will usually Uzma, and she'll let you know what are the next steps or at least find you the resources in your local state in order to do that absolutely so um i guess this is another episode of mommying while muslim we hope that it was not so depressing and sad because you know when when you know better when you when you you understand it it's not as scary it's not as overwhelming and that is kind of what we hope to do here at Mommy One Muslim Podcast. Assalamualaikum everyone. Assalamualaikum. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzma on Mommy One Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show, as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice, because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy Wall Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.